Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we can't make ourselves clean, we do it. And that's the whole first part of this chapter is about this. But now Matthew contrasts legalism with this Canaanite woman. And I, and I know this gets to be a long teaching today, but I really want, this is a major contrast that Jesus, that Matthew's drawing between the organized religion and the religion that Jesus wants us to see. We go from people that are hypocrites to a great faith. We go from Jesus or Peter having baby faith walking on water to this woman who has great faith. So there are levels of faith, and we get to see what they are. Verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there, from this situation with the tradition of the elders, and departed from the region of Tyre and Sion. These are Gentile cities. He's moving back into the... into in, into uh, Or he, he departed to the region of Tyre and Sion. So he's leaving the Galilean area and going out to Gentile cities. He's leaving the Pharisees. And behold, look at this. A woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. So you wonder how long they were traveling with this woman yelling after them, right? And before the disciples were like, Can you just heal her and get rid of her? Like, just take care of her and get this done. But he answered her not a word. This is not like Jesus. It really isn't. If the word is made flesh, why is the word waiting for this Gentile? Why is there a period where the word doesn't go out to the Gentiles? What's the point of this? So the disciples, this is similar to when they asked, they were asked to send the multitude away. It's not that the multitude you know, didn't get the teachings of Jesus, but they were dismissing them. like They weren't able to take care of them in chapter 14. And so there's this idea here that they want to just dismiss this Gentile, right? And the in Canaan, Matthew defines her by her ethnicity. This is pretty rare in the scriptures too. Jesus doesn't define her that way at all. The point that Jesus loves her is the point of this story. So they say, send her away. In Luke 2.29, there's a strong connotation that they wanted her sent away after getting the healing she was requesting. Heal her, Jesus, so she can go, is kind of what they're saying. Just take care of this. So this is, the, this is exactly the same treatment that the disciples are giving the Canaanite woman that the Pharisees gave to the disciples. It's absolutely the same thing. It's the same kind of arrogance. The Pharisees want them rejected for not washing hands. The disciples want her gone because she's yelling too much. And it bugs her. But it's the same dismissal of a human being based on things that have nothing to do with the Word of God. Was she annoying? I think she was. What Was her voice God-inspired, piercingly horrible to listen to? I think it was. And we know God makes different voices. I think this one was uniquely fingers on a chalkboard irritating. And they're just like, can you just... And he just doesn't say a thing. He just keeps walking. And, this, and he's not bothered by it at all. 
How often as Christians are we just bothered by other people? The way they talk, the way they think, the way they do things. How human and how fleshy and how uninspired is that kind of thinking? And what it leads to is just send her away, get rid of her. So he's got to teach his followers something. First of all, patience. This is the response to legalism. We can just deal with people. We can just put up with people sometimes. Sometimes you just have grace. Verse 24, he answered not the woman but the disciples, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the, or I I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is almost sarcasm. <laughs> that uh, because of where this story is going to go, it's like he's repeating a tradition to the disciples because this is a tradition you guys have built up that the Messiah is only for the house of Israel. I'm only here for Israel, right? Well, I thought I wasn't here for this woman. Like, they've just seen thousands of Gentiles getting fed, right, mixed into their crowd. He's been teaching them this all along. To go from where he was to Tyre and Sidon is about a 50-mile walk. So you can imagine that they were walking for a whole day. They're tired. They're wore out. But if this isn't Jesus' mission, then what is? Right? So he's going 50 miles out of the way, and here's this woman wanting a blessing. And instead of just realizing what Jesus is trying to teach them, they go back on this tradition of, of dismissing Gentiles because they're guilty of it too. And we know that from how Peter has to get instructed even after the resurrection. They're following traditions just like the Pharisees were. It's in total contrast. So this is like when Jesus crossed the lake in chapter 8 to just heal the two demon-possessed men. He had a point when he did that. And it's the same thing here. He has a, he's something he's trying to teach us. He's trying to teach his most intimate disciples, the people that love him and want to serve him. And he's trying to teach them that you're just as prone to legalism as those Pharisees were. You're just as guilty of it. Then she came, look at this, and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. So the response to Jesus' silence was that she drew closer to Jesus and then she starts worshiping him. And she says, Lord, help me. Wow. Right? So short prayer number one is in verse 30. Lord, save me. Uh, chapter 40, verse 30, when Peter's going under the water. And when he says that, it's, Lord, save me. And that's sozo. Keep me safe or rescue me. Her prayer, Lord, help me, is boetheo. Bring me aid. And I think these are both great prayers for believers. For baby faithers, <laughs> it's, Lord, just save me. Get me out of my mess. But for great faithers, it's, Lord, help me do what I got to do. Help, give me what help, give me assistance because I want to walk with you. We're, we're not told how this woman came to this point. We don't know. We don't know anything about her background. Uh, but we do know God's spirit is at work in her because even though God is silent, she's still pursuing God. This is great faith. Instead of giving up when she's not answered right away, she gets more emphatic. It's the disciples that lose patience, not God and not the woman. So it's the disciples that have the character flaw in this story. The Pharisees come with arrogance. She comes with humility. The Pharisees don't have any patience for things. This is legalism. And, and, and she comes with absolute commitment to Jesus Christ. The Pharisees have all the answers. She only has petitions and, and requests. So one way to test legalism is do we think we have all the answers or do we approach living with God with humility and need and desperation? Lord, I need you. I'm desperate for you. 
want to hear your word. I want to put your word into my head every day so I know what you have to say to me. The Pharisees reject people, and she's interceding, notice, for her daughter. The Pharisees have disdain. She has love for people that are demon-possessed. Like, think of the contrast between the Pharisees that are great in the world and this Gentile woman who has very low status in the Jewish eyes. We all do this. We all judge each other. We all look at each other and think they, they need something that I have. But man, that's demonic and, and it's so destructive. Am I more prone to judge people than I am to pray for them? Even demon-possessed people. So Jesus feigns a reaction by not responding. <laughs> and the disciples are, just got done taught, teaching, teaching that what comes out of a pure heart, it comes out the mouth. And Jesus then has a situation where nothing comes out of his mouth. He's pausing and not talking so the disciples can see what comes out of her mouth. And it continues to get better and better. Because at this point in verse 25, it's just, Lord, help me. So that's what's coming out of her mouth. And he's showing the disciples what he just taught them. And it was a 50-mile walk for this little lesson. I would have, with my sore feet, been going, Jesus, do we need to walk 50 miles for this? So putting that long hike in, in, the, in the middle of that, yes, Jesus, sometimes it's a long walk to learn a lesson from the Lord. And sometimes that long walk is with Jesus not talking. So when she says, Lord, help me, notice the shift. Her first request was to help her daughter. But it's like her heart is so mirrored with God's heart that when someone is in a, in a plight, it's like she's in a plight. Complete empathy. And, and, it, and it sneaks out of her mouth because she can't help it. Because she loves her daughter so much that her daughter's plight is her plight. I just, this is beautiful. So... <laughs> and this is later on, Matthew's going to have Jesus saying it, love your neighbor as yourself, like it's you going through the struggles. On these two commandments, saying all the law and the prophets, he's showing them what he's teaching them. She says, Lord, help me. It looks a lot like when, when Peter said, Lord, save me. It had to connect the two for him. <clears throat> the proper position before God is one of worship and one of asking him. Then verse 26 but he, Jesus, answered and said, it's not good to take a children's bread and throw it to little dogs. So again, he's first he doesn't say anything, and then he says, well, I'm not supposed to help you. You're not Jewish. And now he's saying, well, why would I give something good to you? You're a dog. You're a Gentile dog. What's interesting here is one of the tradition of the elders was this extreme dismissal of um, Gentiles. And they, 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 the Jewish people called them dogs. Um, it was a derogatory term. It meant that they were unclean. Uh, it meant that they were um, not wanted. Uh, so that slur of little dogs, Jesus, I think, gracefully modifies it. So if I call you a dog, that's very different than calling you a little dog. So in the, in the, in the Greek, this is a much more affectionate term, it, it, the same as it in, is in, in English. So when we say... Um, when we say a puppy, that's a lot sweeter thing than to call somebody a dog. Does that make sense? So the, the, the younger version is definitely cuter. Remember, just last chapter, Jesus called Peter a baby faither, a little faither. So these aren't then the dogs that you would have in a street, like street dogs, which are unclean, filthy, living in the mud, messed up hair. These are puppies, little dogs. 
which would be in the home or that you would pet that would be fluffy and cute and adorable. So there's a huge difference between the Jewish tradition of calling them dogs and the term Jesus actually uses here. <clears throat> because it says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little puppies, he's talking about the dogs that people kept in their homes. He's talking about house dogs, not street dogs. So though his words are still fairly harsh, they're exactly what the disciples are thinking, just like he did back in verse 24. What the disciples were thinking is, well, the Messiah is here for Israel. Why are we walking to Tyre and Sidon? And the disciples are thinking, the disciples are thinking to themselves, why would we give the word of God and give it to these Gentiles who don't care about the word of God? What's the point of doing that? Um, I know there's groups of people that I have to check myself on because I think, well, if they don't want to hear the message of Jesus Christ, why would I even bother with them? And that's, again, the same thing Jesus is trying to teach them to fight against that. It's a tradition, just like washing hands, to think that Gentiles aren't worth their time. So given this response, he's likely saying this to the woman in a fairly joyful, joy, jovial way because he was silent with her. And then he said, well, aren't I here for the house of Israel? And it's almost like Jesus is interacting with her in a very human way, a very kind of gracious, joyful way. But he's using sarcasm and he's... I, when you read this, I hear it with a little smirk on his face. So with the woman, he's just playing with the idea, but the disciples are getting the message. Yeah, we get it, Jesus. But Jesus is just playing with them at this point. And he's kind of like, you know, is it not good to take? So he's, he's, he is asking her kind of a question here. My translation doesn't have a question mark on it, but is it not good? To, or it is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the little dogs? It's almost like he's inviting her to respond to this thought. Because why would she agree with that, right? So in the flesh, you would think she would just say, well, I'm not a little dog. I'm a person. But she doesn't take that at all. She plays with him. And she plays along with it because she's got some humor. So she gets what Jesus is talking about. And she says in verse 27, yes, Lord gives him the title. Yet even little dogs uses the title that he gave her. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her and said, Oh, woman, gives her a new name. Oh, woman. He doesn't call her little dog. He calls her woman. <laughs> oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. So I love the fact that this is just such a great exchange. And it so shows just this wonderful thing. Back in verse 22, uh, her initial title was a woman of Canaan. But in verse 28, Jesus doesn't consider her a Canaanite. He just considers her a woman. And the way in which Jesus elevates her from little puppy to a woman worthy of his time. And then he gives her a title that he didn't even give to his disciples yet. Um, but there's a it says, yet even, in verse 27, yet even. This idea that she accepts what he's saying, but she correctly points at the heart of what he's saying. This is, she deals with Jesus because he's playfully taking on the role of the legalist. And she responds to him in a much more polite relationship kind of way, but with the same thought that Jesus responded to the Pharisees. Because he told the Pharisees, it's about your heart. It's not about how if you wash your hands. And she's basically pointing to the same idea. This is She has deep intelligence. 
think about it. She's bantering with the God of the universe and doing it fairly well. And she picks up on it and it's like, even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And she points at the heart. The heart of a dog is to, in the family, a household dog, they just sit by the table and wait for the crumbs and they're fine with that. They'll take what the Lord gives. But the Pharisees, it's not enough. It's not sufficient for them. They have to add things to it in their pride. Uh, but throwing, verse food, uh, is not the same as falling. So Jesus used the word throwing in verse 26. Uh, it's not good to take the children's food, the bread, which could be an image of the word of God, and throw it to little dogs. So when you throw food to a dog, that's not the same as food that has fallen. So um, <laughs> when uh, it's interesting how she takes it and she gets to the heart of the matter with it. She's not expecting anything to be thrown to her. She's simply willing to wait for what's left over. And what a beautiful thought. I'm not will I don't need to take over the Jewish traditions. I don't need to erase the Old Testament. I'll take what overflows from that. I'll take what comes after the fact. No, my people don't have 5,000 years of history as Jews, but I'm willing to take what the Lord's willing to give right now. And that blessing is enough for me. It's sufficient. I don't need traditions to add to it, and I don't need traditions to take away from it. So the Pharisees use discernment and this legal thinking of theirs to take away blessing from their parents but here we have images of, of not just children, but the children's puppy getting the same kind of thing. And she uses her legal mind to discern and unleash blessing in the, in the imaginary hypothetical story. I mean, think of the contrast between this woman and the Pharisees. The Pharisees come with an entourage from Jerusalem. She comes all by herself. The Pharisees have a sickness of heart. She has a purity of heart. She wants... She wants mercy from her Lord. The Pharisees want him to sacrifice the washing of hands time. And they want more from their Lord. Puppies just want to be loved. And the Pharisees just want to tell other people what that looks like. She accepts the role Jesus gives her. That's a hard message for us as individualists in America. This We've been pumped the message of you're the greatest thing in the world since we were babies watching cartoons on TV. You're the best. She just takes what the Lord's, you want to call me a little puppy? I'll be a little puppy. You want me to do this? I'll do that. She accepts the role that the Lord gives and she doesn't demand promotion. She never advocates that she's anything other than a little puppy. <laughs> the disciples have already gotten the title the children of the, ch the children of God are disciples. And she does, she's okay to not be a disciple. She's okay to just sit back. She gets it. Jesus, I get that you're here for the Jews first. Oh, that we could pray that kind of prayer with humility. God, I'm so little. I'm so worthy. I just want a crumb of your blessing. That's all I'm asking for. And I'll wait for it. I'll wait for your children to get everything they need. And I'll just wait for things to fall from the table. What a contrast to the Pharisees. She chases after God asking for blessing. They chase after Jesus telling him curses. It's totally a flip, and, and, and it's why this chapter kind of fits together. Um, soon Jesus is going to teach in chapter 20. The last will be first, the first will be last. 
for there are many that are called, but few that are chosen. And in verse 28, Jesus changes your title from puppy, not just a child of God, but from puppy to woman, even more than a child. Um, and, and he gets serious with her. And, and in verse 28, he just turns off the entourage. What's interesting is as he plays this part, that's a different kind of actor, isn't it? He plays a part in order to bless people, where the Pharisees are hypocrites playing a part just that becomes a curse to people. But by Jesus saying these lines and not really meaning them, he's actually doing the same things the Pharisees did, but he's doing it for blessing instead of curses. I just It's so genius. Like, the way Matthew kind of puts these two stories together. And then, he, and this is the kicker, he says, great is your faith. This is emphatic uh, in the Greek. It's, in a, it's an absolutely intense thing that he's making a point. Your Bible should have an exclamation point. So I should read it that way. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And he emphasizes it. Your faith is amazing. The word in the Greek is one we understand. Mega mega faith and this is again a chapter after he just told peter uh, oh you have baby faith why did you doubt but she doesn't doubt at all she's like jacob clinging to god all night even if it breaks her hip she's like ruth like david like elijah it, it has to bring back the images of the greats of the faith of the old testament for all the disciples that were well-trained little jewish boys they had to realize that when God says somebody has great faith, that's a very small category of human beings. And Jesus just turns on this woman and says, great is your faith. Megas pistas. Do you get it, disciples? Megas pistas. Do you see this? Behold, and look at what this woman is doing right now. She doesn't give up just because I don't respond right away. She's persistent in her prayer. She's not asking for herself. She's asking, she's doing intercessory prayer. She's not asking for her, herself to be blessed. She's not trying to promote herself. She's trying to help other people. She's, this is the only person Jesus says this to. The closest we get is the centurion, but he's speaking to the crowd in chapter 8, verse 10, saying that the centurion, he had great faith. But this one, he says it directly to her. There's no other person in the Bible he speaks directly to and says, you have great faith. How unique this woman is. How this elevates her status in the church. She's, she's of higher rank right now than Peter is. But that doesn't matter because Peter's got a lot of work to do. And she has, God's not going to give her any obligations in the church. Faith here is to continue to ask for blessing even when it looks like you're getting a no. Even in God's silence, she continues to ask. In Peter's baby faith, Ogliopistos, he doubted. There's no doubting with the mega faith. Just complete assurance, complete contentment with the crumbs. Matthew 14, 31. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, and he said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? So there are different levels of faith. There's little faith and there's great faith. They're not the same thing. Jesus says, if Jesus says it, I believe it. That's baby faith. If Jesus doesn't say anything and I believe it, that's pretty amazing faith. If tradition is against faith, but God is for this thing, I'm going to believe it. Let me say that again. If Jesus, uh, if Jesus says something in the word and we just believe it, that's good. It's a baby faith and God can work with that. 
But if we have entire cultures of tradition that are against something, but we know God is for it and we're going to believe it anyways, that is great faith. And this woman is coming to the disciples and Jesus against the entire culture of the pagan Gentiles and against the entire culture of the Jews. She's doing what the entire world says not to do. And Jesus is reflecting back those cultural dispositions to her. Well, I'm, I'm only supposed to be here for the children of Israel. She's like, I don't need to be a child. I can just be a puppy of God. God puppies. The delay in Jesus' response here wasn't to change the woman at all. It was for the disciples to see how wonderful this woman was. When God does respond to her, he responds to her playfully in order to teach his disciples. He came 50 miles out of his way to heal this woman's daughter, and he knew fully well what he was doing. So the only thing that we know happens in Tyre and Sidon is this one daughter that gets healed remotely because of her mom. Jesus makes no differentiation here because she's Gentile or Jew or because she's female and not male. Um, compliments this woman more than any other woman. More than God made them both male and female, but she's got great faith, and in her generation, she stands above them. And God's love goes out without any kind of distinction here. Christianity then starts a long journey to undo these traditions. And there are some sects of Christianity that create their new traditions, but they don't have to. Jesus then turns and he heals the multitudes. So he, dispar he departs from there, Tyre and Sidon, verse 29, and skirts the Sea of Galilee, goes around it, and he went up to, on the mountain and sat down there. So he, he, he literally goes from a Gentile region, skirts around the Galilean region, Jewish, and, and ministers over in another area um, that's not there. Then great multitude, or, so he's, he's still with Gentiles. Then the mul great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. Remember Isaiah 29? So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Total contrast to the Pharisees. From Mark, we know that when he made this trip, um, that he actually ends up in an area called the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. Uh, the large numbers of Gentile people there, and we see from this verse, verse 31, that these Gentile people start glorifying the God of Israel. And, and, and it says that at the very end. Glorified not just God, but glorified the God of Israel. Um, so even in Matthew, there's indication there that we're talking about Gentiles coming around. The Gentiles are getting just more than a few crumbs from the table here. They're getting the total and entire blessing of Jesus Christ. So where the Pharisees doubt him because of their traditions, this woman defies traditions and is willing to accept the single blessing of her daughter getting healed of a demonic possession. And then Jesus, verse 29, departs from that situation, from there, and he goes and he just heals the multitude of Gentiles. He pours his blessing out on the Gentile kingdom. And he's doing this to teach his disciples. We're supposed to live for eternity, not for modernity. We're supposed to live for others, not over others. We're supposed to live for the fresh fruit of God's salvation and grace to the world, not live for traditions of the elders and the dead things. Disciples, do you get it? 
Baby faith is God's word over traditions. Loving God, loving others. But mega faith is to intercede for other people, to come with humility before God, to accept the Holy Spirit as it is and be content with what you get. Pharisees see all of this and they get territorial. This woman sees all of this and she, get, and she fills her heart with worship. And then in verse 31, all these people from the Decapolis, they marvel at what they see from God and they just glorify the God of Israel. Jesus still isn't taking credit for himself, by the way. Jesus points people to the God of Israel. He points people to Yahweh. So even though he's fully God and he could accept that worship, he's, he's fully human and he's showing his disciples how to point people to God. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself. <laughs> this is so great. Before when they fed the multitude, they fed the Jews. But now they're in a multitude full of Gentiles. That situation has changed. But Jesus is, remember he asked Peter, do you still not understand? So they just did a 50-mile hike. Then they walked the other direction. They literally backtracked for another 50 miles. He's just walking them to death, right? Now they're the ones that are tired and weary, and they need food, and they're hungry. Jesus calls the disciples to himself and says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and I have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint. I, again, please hear a playful tone with the disciples just like he gave to the Gentile woman. He's, being, he's toying with them. He's doing this with a little smirk and a wink because he uses, if we go back to chapter 14 and you flip back and forth, Back in chapter 15, he was moved with compassion. Both times there was no food. Um, you know, back in chapter 14, it was only one day without food, but now it's three days without food. They're completely hungry. In, in, in 14, the disciples say, you got to send these people away, just like they say to send the woman away just a few verses ago. They say the same thing, and they, they still haven't learned it. Every week he plays with the squeaky toy. Thanks, Timber. Timber's saying he's about done with Bible study, but he's got to bear with it for a few more minutes. This is just wonderful. Um, in this situation, unlike chapter 14, where the disciples say, I got to send them away, this time Jesus says, and I don't want to send them away hungry. So he, he advances what they would have said back in the last chapter, um, and he, he, he changes the, the text a little bit. It seems like Jesus is trying to intentionally recreate the exact same scenario. Only this time, he wants them to learn some things. So he says the same things. He prompts them with the same discussion thread that we saw back in 14. <clears throat> There's definitely a playfulness to what he's doing here. They don't send him away this time, um, even though they're Gentiles and, and a good Jewish person by tradition, by the tradition of the elders, would send these people away. They're, they don't, they're not responsible for Gentiles. But then his disciples said to him, verse 33, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? They know darn well where that food's coming from. I think the disciples are playing with Jesus back. And they're like, I don't know, where could we get the bread? Like they, they have no idea what's going to happen next. And I, there's such a joy to this that seems to be a great counter image to the oppression of the tradition. You guys didn't wash your hands. That just sucks the life out of that miracle. 
You know, they feed all those people and then you didn't wash your hands. And it just, man, can't you guys just worship the Lord God Almighty? Can't you just see what the miracle that just happened here? But no, you, a great work of God happens and you get these traditional people that just suck the joy out of it. So Jesus is redoing the whole thing. But this time, this joy is not going to get sucked out of it at all. This time, the multitude marvels when they see the mute speaking, when the maimed are made whole, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, and they glorify the God of Israel. And don't think for a second the disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing here. Because in verse 33, they just kind of be like, they're just playing dumb. I don't know. What could we possibly do, Jesus? Maybe this is extremely playful. Maybe there's a, a joy and a hope that's seeping back into their hearts. As they were upset that they lost the, the religious elites of, of Israel, Jesus is showing them we haven't lost a thing. We're going to build a new kingdom with these people because those people don't get it. In chapter 14, Jesus says, "Could you, you need to give them something. Why don't you do something about these people? In this chapter, they they give this prompt line like, where could we do something? So they get what's going on here. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? He only asks for loaves. Notice that their response, they actually get put the fish back in, right? And they said, seven and a few little fish. This is beautiful. Can you feel the excitement growing? Like how sunk their hearts had to be after the Pharisees came with their nastiness, their hypocrisy, and the buildup of this story with the woman, the miracle, and now the multitudes back, and all these baby faithers, they're growing into mega faithers now. This is great. This is it. This is the moment. The priesthood just lost their priesthood and got a new title, but this woman got a new title too, and God's elevating a new church and they can feel it happening. This had to be one of the greatest moments in human history. And they just say, seven and a few little fish. They get what's happening. Seven is the number of divine perfection. This is exactly what God's going to do. And God is good, and he's joyful, and he's holy. And this is awesome. So seven is the number of rest. <laughs> so just this idea of how many, how many loaves do you have? And they say, perfect. Literally in the, in the word seven in Jewish is also the same word for perfect or in the Hebrew. So they're speaking in Greek, but they know the connection between the Hebrew use of the word perfect and a few baby fish. I just, it's awesome. It's such a line. And I think that they remember the line. This is why Matthew years later can write this down is he remembers this moment. And Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And they say, perfect. They're content with what they have. They don't have too little this time. They have exactly the little that God wants them to have. They have the perfect amount. So God's perfection in Jesus is everything they need. And it's not much. It's, it's little, but it's what they need. So it's away we go. Let's do this, Jesus. We're going to feed them again. And they know it's coming. That, and that, by the way, is what you call faith. They've seen it happen once. They know it's going to happen again. So the, they rest in God's provision, his blessing. They know his word is true. And this is more than tradition. This is experience leading them into this joyful thing. And remember, this all started with them being accused of washing, not washing their hands. 
So I'm guessing they don't bother to wash their hands here before they hand out the loaves and the fishes. There's this excitement. Verse 35, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, exactly the same as he did in chapter 15. When they sit down on the ground, God is saying, he commands them, verse 35, that's God's word leading the people. Same as chapter 14. God's word led the Jews and they rejected him, or the Pharisees did. God's word leads these people and they just worship him. So he's not, this isn't the religious police telling people what they have to do. It's a different kind of command. It's the command of God himself telling them to sit down. And he took seven loaves and the fish and give thanks. Notice in verse 36, they don't say little fish because we're, this is now historical speech. It's not what was actually said, which was playful. So he took this, the perfect loaves, the word of God, and the fish and gave thanks. And he broke them and gave to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they ate and they were filled. This is all verses 36 and 37 are identical to chapter 14. So this is the harvest. They pass out the word, which is the, the bread, the bread and, and oftentimes fish, we eat the fish because there's great fish oil in it. So the, an image of the spirit. And he took the perfect word of God and the, the spirit and he gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples and his disciples gave them the, the, the multitude. This is the church, right? And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragrance that were left. How many baskets? Perfect. They took up the perfect amount. They started with perfect. They ended with perfect. Matthew is really intentional here. He is, being a tax collector, fascinated with the numbers. And he records the numbers because it's a big, he's amazed at how all of this not only is a great miracle and experience, but it's perfect too. And God lays in layers of meaning to this. So the Jews are going to figure this out. A Jewish reader would see this and be like, oh, like, so the priesthood is a bunch of hypocrites and the real people are the people that just sit when God tells them to sit. And those are the folks you work with. So for chapter 14, for the Jewish feeding of the people, there were five loaves and it produced 12 baskets. Different numbers, right? So five being the number of the Torah, the law, and the 12 being the number of governance, the, the tribes of Israel, um, the number of disciples. Uh, the, so we get the, the law, basically, and the governance of the old system, the Jewish people. But here we have seven loaves, and in the end, seven baskets are collected. It's perfect, perfect. Jesus is setting up a new covenant that's not based on the law, and it's not based on the, tribe, the traditional Jewish tribes. It's based on this perfect church system that he's going to set up. So if the Pharisees were here, likely, instead of being upset about washing of hands, they'd be upset about the fact that seven baskets got collected. Like, don't miss how important that would be for the Jews. They put a lot of weight on these numbers. So I think if the Pharisees were at this feeding, they would have been upset about the fact that there were seven extra baskets. They wouldn't be excited about the miracle that just happened. They'd be upset about the fact that God's putting a little finger and poking fun at them by having seven baskets be there. And they would just think, well, that's, that's an affront. So in chapter 14, the, the baskets are called 
Kofinos. Again, this is such a great story. And, and don't miss that to understand the book of Matthew, contrasting these two feedings is part of what Matthew's saying. In chapter 14, the baskets are kofinos, or small baskets, wicker baskets. In chapter 15, he uses a different word for baskets. He uses sporisi, which is reed baskets, which were like clothing hampers. They were the huge baskets. So in chapter 14, they collect 12 little teeny baskets. But in chapter 15, they collect seven perfect, huge, large baskets. So in truth, here's the, this is kind of interesting. Chapter six or verse 16, verse 10, those are large baskets that even though there were more baskets in chapter 15, there was likely more fruit or more food in the, the seven baskets for this one. So same kind of thing. There might be more rules in the Old Testament, but there's way, there might be less rules in the New Testament, but far more blessing. The imagery just stands up when you, the further you get into it. So the count of baskets is numerically smaller, but the abundance is much larger. Less count, more abundance. The new kingdom is just like that. It's perfectly sufficient. We still, we still obey the command of God. But even in that, the abundance of that following God's word is so much greater with the way God wants to set it up than the traditions of the Jews. The blessing is so much more powerful. So Jesus does his part. There's a new creation. The disciples do their part. The only job the disciples have here is to share what God's provided. Not to go and attack whoever didn't give up their food. It's the, Matthew's setting this up as a response to the Pharisees, showing how Jesus just did this. And he just, like God, knew how to get into the disciples' hearts. Because the important situation at the beginning of this chapter wasn't the Pharisees that are upset. He's walking away from those people. What's important is that his people know how insidious those traditions can be and how fruitful his kingdom can be. Nobody has anything to eat. What do we do about it? I don't know, Lord. What do you have to give us? We have virtually nothing for you, Lord, and that's perfect. That's absolute. We just have baby fish. That's all we have to give you, Lord. But we also know in faith that's exactly what the Lord wants for us to. That's the perfect position for us to do it. And then he sends them go. He sends them, cuts them loose, and he starts to guide the multitude. We don't have to. And the disciples simply give what they've been given, and they hand out what they can. Verse 38. Now those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. We would think the temptation would be to make a bigger number here, because there were 5,000 back in chapter 14. Um, unless, of course, Matthew cares a lot about accuracy, and there's simply less Gentiles showing up to the party. You know, And that maybe when we go out into the world, it's not about percentage. It looks just like the baskets. Right? There's way more Gentiles in the world than Jews, but there might be far less of them that follow God percentage-wise than there are Jews, just like the baskets. Less count, but more abundant. Maybe that idea back in verse 14 of leaving them alone is that we don't have to worry about how many people show up. If God's commanding his sheep, we follow his sheep, we share what we get. It's a really simple equation. Less count, more abundance. Less work, more abundance. Peter gets that dream about feeding the Gentiles. But for now, <laughs> the Gentiles uh, are eating in a separate feast from the Jews. Jews ate back in chapter 14. The Gentiles eat here in chapter 
15. Um, and, and later on, the image of this is that these are both images of a big feast, a very, very big feast with much more than just bread and fish. And that feast will be where both the Jews and the Gentiles eat together, but that's not going to happen until Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're all invited. And this is what's made clear in Matthew is in chapter 14, the Jews are invited. Chapter 15, the Gentiles are invited. As we go forward after the resurrection, uh, Jesus is going to show his people that he doesn't want these to be two separate meals. He wants them all to come together. So he shows God about this idea where men, women, kids, they're all part of the feast. And God really only cares about one division for people on earth. There's people that follow him and people who don't. And that's it. There's people that read his word and there's people who follow the tradition of the elders. Those who love God and those who love themselves. That's the only division that matters. The Jew-Gentile thing, it's got to go away. The male Pharisees and the female Canaanite woman, that division's got to go away. It's not about that. It's about who loves the Lord God all their mighty. That said, washing your hands before meals is still a good thing. Like, you just don't put it above God's word. Verse 39, And he sent the multitude away, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Frankly, to me, that sentence is like the start of the next chapter. Like, we're going to, Matthew uses those kind of divisions, but the word and is there, and he sent the multitude away. Why is the word and there, and why is it connected like that? And the only thing I could think of that kind of explains that, for me at least, is that he sent the multitude away because the lesson was done. So now that the disciples are playing with him in joy versus legally critiquing the traditions, and he's shown that this woman can playfully interact with them and his disciples can playfully interact with them, and he sent the multitude away. Lesson learned, and it's kind of done. And he gets into the boat and he comes to the region of Magdala. Uh, so it's a setup for the next chapter. It's a transition point. Uh, and the narrative thread doesn't really end. So this chapter kind of goes with the next chapter still. Um, but we have an anxious dog that wants to be done with Bible study for today. But what a joy. Like honestly pulling this apart line by line and word by word. And you realize that God doesn't just critique the hypocrites. He shows the disciples what to replace it with. Instead of being focused on the traditions of man, we're supposed to be focused on the abundant blessings of God Almighty, not just the crumb for one person, but for the multitudes. And that's the replacement of legalism, the dead religion of legalism versus the alive salvation of actual human beings feasting together and enjoying life together. And the contrast is so clear for those that have been to the feast or seen the feast. And if you haven't and you've always lived under the tradition of the elders, it's time to wake up and abandon that and say, Lord, I just save me. Get, please help me like the woman prayed. Just help me get out of that and to see that abundance that, she, that the Lord has to offer and the feast that he's inviting us to. In Jesus' name, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word and your blessing. And we just thank you for this time today to study your word. Uh, and we don't do that lightly, Lord. We just, we know that each word of the Bible is inspired and it's hard to believe Matthew really laid all this out so perfectly. Um, but even if he did, Lord, that you inspired him to do that um, and your, your spirit is all over every single line and every single word. Uh, Lord, the connection to Isaiah 29, whether intentional or not, is an amazing biblical connection. 
the way in which you um, show us your heart of love and joy um, in, in this passage. Lord, I'm just touched by it. We, we get to see your character a little bit. Um, and the patience you had and the grace you had. You didn't just complain about the Pharisees. You actually, with a smile on your face, showed people what love looked like instead. Uh, Lord, help us to do that. When there's things that make us anxious or angry uh, or worried in this world and there's, there's false religions out there that seek our attention, Lord, help us to just put a smile on our face and go do your work. Uh, to look for the perfect little provision that we have and watch you turn it into something amazing. Help us to serve you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.